Welcome to Typecast, Boston's new play podcast. I'm your host, Darren Evans, the managing director of Boston Playwrights Theater, the home for new plays in Boston. In this podcast series, we'll be diving deep into the new play ecosystem of Beantown, talking with playwrights, directors, actors, and theater makers of all types about the process of bringing a new play into the world. In this episode, we are joined by Katie Shea Violet to discuss her new play, Rx Machina, which opens at Boston Playwrights Theater on February 17th. She is an award-winning Los Angeles-based playwright and screenwriter whose work explores invisible disabilities, sexuality, and learning how to belong to yourself. Her works include Reap the Grove, Slow Jam, Credible, Gaslight Supernova, Target Behavior, and they've been produced throughout the country. Originally from the Midwest, Katie Shea has a BFA in acting from the University of Minnesota Duluth, and of course, is a graduate of our own MFA in playwriting here at BU. Also joining us today is director Blair Cadden. Blair is drawn to ensemble-driven theater that invites ritual, community, movement, and a little messiness. Blair is an East Coast-based director, dramaturg, and teaching artist. She's originally from Charleston, South Carolina, where she was the co-founding artistic director of Fifth Wall Productions, a scrappy theater company with a focus on new work, which we love. Blair resides in Boston, Massachusetts with an overprotective Chewini named Mo. Note for the record, I have no idea what a Chewini is. And lastly, we have Anastasia Oluwin, a Brooklyn-based actor and producer who stars as Marin in Rx Machina. Originally from the San Francisco Bay Area, she holds a BFA from New York University, where she studied at the Experimental Theater Wing. She has also trained at the Moscow Art Theater and the American Conservatory Theater. She has performed all throughout New York, and some on-screen credits include festival favorite Tourists and Belle in the After Ever After web series. She is also a co-producer at 2x4 Productions. Katie Shea, Blair, and Anastasia, Welcome to Typecast. Thank you. Hello, thanks. Thanks so much for having us. Delighted to have you all here. To kick things off, my first question is for the playwright, Katie Shea. Yes. Uh, your play title is a play on the term deus ex machina. Can you walk us through any connection of that term to the themes of the play, or did it just sound cool to you? I mean, uh, let's be honest with titles, they always have to sound a little cool to you. So that's not not a driving factor. But um, I, I think with this play in general, I really wanted to be able to focus on these systemic issues that are really, really zoomed out so often um, and makes it actually really hard to kind of engage with larger systemic issues with our healthcare system and be able to do that through a really, really interpersonal lens. Um, and so it's sort of like examining this larger machine um, and then through the, the context of prescription, obviously it deals with the opioid epidemic um, and different ways that we try to soothe what is painful to us. Excellent. So I want to check in with Blair and Anastasia. This is a, a new play. Uh, and I'm just wondering from your perspective, first time you read it, brand new play, 
what stood out to you? What like intrigued you the most about the show? So my first impression when I first read the play, well, I, I read the play last summer for the first time when I was auditioning for it. Um, and obviously I'm an actor and I'm selfish. So I mostly focused on my own character. Um, so <laughs> I, what I loved about it though, was that it was the first time in a long time that I've, um, read a scene, read a character that I immediately felt like I understood this person. Um, Marin's a very complicated woman and she's very much, she's very present in every moment and very truthful in every moment. And that always, that, that does not always carry over into the next moment of her life. Um, and uh, just reading it, she made a lot of sense to me and I loved Katie Shea's writing and I really uh, got excited about the idea of diving into this complicated world um, with these multifaceted people that already seemed so full on the page. Um, and I've done a lot of new plays. I love working on new plays. I think it's so much fun to bring things to life from the very you know ground level up. Um, and not all of them are as well baked when you first receive them as this one was. So that was also kind of an exciting thing to be presented with this very new and fresh material that obviously was going to be super fun and exciting to dig into. Blair? So the first time I encountered this play was actually a while ago because we've been working on this, Katie Shea and I, for quite a while now. But thinking back to that previous version that I first read, I think one of the things that jumped out at me was the way that it does show us both the larger machine that's kind of moving these people around, limiting their choices, um, you know, diminishing some of their options, but it does spend most of its time really zoomed in on these very specific, very unique individuals who are being affected by that larger thing. And I think we hear so much about, especially in recent years, you know, the Sackler family and the sort of machine of big pharma, right? all of those evils in this play that sort of looms in the background, but it's actually not the focus. The focus is on the individual lives and the various ways that they're influenced by that machine. And I think that that play between the big picture and the zoom in on the individuals has lived a lot of different ways and different iterations of this play, but it's always been a constant feature of it that I found really interesting and is now proving really fun to stage also. You, you both mentioned Blair and Anastasia, um, some of the complexities of of the characters. Um, I, I, let's dive. In. I want to dive into that a little bit. So, just for the so the audience knows, the play involves five women dealing with the opioid crisis from different perspectives, um, and it the play uh, like life. I think um, forces these women. I think into tough choices, difficult decisions, um, and, and you know, complex decisions. And I'm wondering, Katie Shea, what's the creative process for uh, putting characters into situations where their morals and ethics are questioned? Are there tools that you're thinking about in terms of raising the stakes, or is, are you just writing and it happens? I mean, uh, to quote the great Melinda Lopez, uh, you got to push your characters down the stairs. Um, that's one of the, the best ways to find out who they are. <laughs> and, um, wow, that's ruthless. I know, 
I know she's dark. Uh, it's fantastic. <laughs> I love her. Um, but, but truly I, I think one of the things that I've discovered in my writing process, this is a little bit more intangible than like a, a solid tool, but, um, when I'm, when I'm trying to figure out like, okay, is this the direction or not writing towards what hurts the most? And honestly, what feels like embarrassing almost, um, like what I'm like almost embarrassed for people. For, <laughs> uh, it usually feels like that's truer. Um, and a little bit more raw. And it also has space for both humor and darkness in that because people don't want to do with themselves in really tough situations. Um, and I think that brings to light a lot of what that is. I think from a playwriting perspective, definitely trying to raise stakes, trying to figure out, okay, so if this character has two options, what's the more dramatically complex one? What's the one that I don't actually know the ending to yet? What is the thing that I do not know what they would do if this happened? Um, and that allows you to have a really organic uh, scene on the page because you're figuring out what's happening alongside the audience who would be watching it too, right? As a writer, you're kind of having that, that sort of discovery process as opposed to it being too prescriptive um and then uh, of course you get to rehearsals and then you cut all the shit that you don't need out of it so that's the best part too that process do you find that uh, that process of not knowing exhilarating or or scary or both I, a little bit of both i love um i love the process of rewriting and of really like figuring out how to turn the heat up on things and figuring out what what works best I do not love the the first draft process at all and I know some people find that so like so much freedom and you can go anywhere from that the the opportunities are endless and lots of people like to start projects but hate kind of keep going on them I'm the opposite I want to like fine-tune this play um and to me that's so satisfying when like when you're kind of listening along it's almost like music when things like hit your ear off. It's like, mm, that wasn't right. I don't know why. And usually when you dig into it, it's some like character motivational reason, but it just sounds off in your ear when you're listening to it. It's, it's very fascinating. We've talked already a little bit about um, how this play is kind of centered around the opioid crisis. And uh, that's obviously, uh, Blair, as you mentioned, like a big story these days. Um, it's affecting so many people's lives and I'm just uh, in, in the real world. And I'm, so I'm wondering um, what kind of research, this is, I guess, for Blair or Anastasia, like what kind of research did you do into that world for your character, for your world building Blair um, in terms of uh, what did you look into to, to, under, to understand that world so that you could then bring it to life? Yeah, for me, there was a little bit of reading, you know, internet reading research just to understand the sort of different waves of this opioid crisis in a sort of historical way. And then I found one of the most useful resources. There's a really incredible HBO documentary called The Crime of the Century that gives a lot of that larger context for the, the big pharma machine itself and just brings to light a bunch of really, truly horrifying things that happened and that were allowed to happen by the agencies who are supposed to ostensibly protect us. And I think that helped me a lot with the larger framework of that machine that, again, sort of lurks in the background of the play. And then, you know, the characters themselves are so vividly written that I sort of let them live and speak for themselves in terms of figuring out who they were just through what they reveal to us in the play. 
This is actually one of my favorite things about being a an actor or a theater artist in general is that every single project that you work on uh, just kind of opens a whole can of worms of so much that you get to learn about, whether it's a different time period or a different culture or uh, whatever the theme of the play is, um, you're always learning something new and unexpected. Um, so there was a lot that I already knew about the opioid crisis, but I have learned so infinitely so much more uh, working on this project, um, just in terms of similar to Blair, doing a little bit of my own research um, on the internet and going down some scary dark rabbit holes there. Um, and the documentary that Blair mentioned as well was it, it's incredibly difficult to watch and super helpful for this. Um, and then we've also been having a lot of great conversations in the room, kind of bringing uh, everyone's research together. And Katie Shea obviously has um, been doing a lot of work through this um, and has shared a lot of her own experiences with us. And that's been super helpful as well. Um, and then my mom's a psychiatrist. So I kind of grew up around hospitals and around pills and around those, that kind of vocabulary. Um, so I guess I also trained a little bit for this when I was a child. Katie Shea, that brings me to um, what the, uh, the impetus was to take on this challenging subject that is the topic of documentaries as we've, as we've been hearing and news stories and um, uh, you know, it's a, it's a huge topic, but I'm wondering what, what drew you to it? Yeah. So, um, I, I've talked about this openly. Um, a big part of my story as, as a human, um, is that I have a chronic pain condition. Um, and that really kind of came to a head, um, in around like 2009, 2010. Um, and so, the um, I personally have fibromyalgia. That's not necessarily the story of anybody directly in the play. It's not an autobiographical play, um, but that is one that's really hard to diagnose. And so I spent a lot of my early 20s um, trying to basically sometimes people call it a diagnosis of exclusion. Um, and it's, it's basically like, well, you don't show up on any other tests. So I guess we'll do this. Um, and people didn't really know what to do with me or why I was hurting. Um, and so I was prescribed a lot of opiates for a bit. Um, and so I lived inside that system. Um, that was something that was really challenging. And I was fortunate to not spiral too far off that path, but even just taking what was prescribed to me, I absolutely felt the pangs of, of the opioid epidemic and specifically when it was starting to shift systemically. Um, the play takes place in 2015 and that's really intentional. Um, that was around the time that I, I kind of stepped out of that system, but that changed. There's a really, really big um, kind of sweeping wave of legislation in 2016, 2017 about trying to um, mitigate the opioid epidemic. And so kind of before that, there was a lot of new policies coming in. People didn't know what to do. There was like a new e-scribe. They're trying to stop people from doctor shopping. They're trying to, which uh, is the process of going to multiple doctors, trying to seek pills. So there's trying to get better recording systems. Um, just every, every day there were lots of new, um, new things. And even if there was a positive intention behind it, um, which, you know, can be debated, uh, it's still, if it was a harm reduction, if they wanted to have less pills out there, the way that it kind of translated, at least from my perspective, was that patients were being treated like criminals, um, for taking medications that were prescribed to them. And also were put up in really, really scary situations that sometimes, um, 
motivated decisions that they didn't want to be making because they felt like they were so dependent on this medication to live their lives. Um, and, and what's the alternative, right? Do you quit your job if you're in so much pain that you can't work? What do you do? You know? Um, and so I think for me that that's just part of my own personal story. I also have, um, some family members who work in specifically pain management and I've seen that side as well. And I know how much love and care and like sincere effort. Um, a lot of great doctors put into trying to treat their patients in this impossible freaking system. And so kind of what Blair was speaking to that we, we don't go down the really, what is fantastic for a documentary and some other series, but I wasn't really interested in exploring the, like the Sackler family. I wasn't really interested in exploring the thing that I feel like we had all kind of had a consensus of this was very bad and wrong. Um, I kind of wanted to flesh out, okay, what about with a bunch of people who are really trying to make it in the system? What happens when everybody is trying to do their job and they might be motivated by things that I don't agree with. Um, they might be really uneducated, uh, like Marin is in her job of, a lot of the choices she makes, she's not given the full picture from the pharmaceutical company. Um, so that's, you know, I, I wanted to explore this difficult crisis in the least obvious way I could think of, which was the everyday impact for the people who are trapped in that system. Speaking of being trapped in a system, uh, we have to take a pause for uh, our, our sponsors, for this month's sponsors. So uh, hang tight. We're going to take a short break, but when we come back, we are going to delve even deeper into Rx Machina, and then we'll lighten things up with a quick game. So stay tuned. We will be right back. Do you love the convenience of the MBTA, but hate sharing a crowded car with others? Well, now you don't have to. Introducing T4U, a personalized T-car service just for you. With T4U, you can reserve a T-car just for you that will pick you up and drop you off at your chosen T-stop. Forget all the other rideshare apps and no more sharing a T-car with germy COVID-ridden strangers. This latest innovation from MBTA gives you the luxury you expect from the T while beating the traffic of the Boston roads at all hours of the day. When using T4U, you combine the sustainability and warp speed of public transportation with the exclusivity of having personalized chauffeured service. T4U will drop you off at popular T-stop destinations, including Government Center, North Station, and that spot in between Boylston and Arlington where the cars always get stuck. Early testers are calling it totally environmentally friendly and less broy than Uber. Whether you're going to your job during the week or going out for a night on the town, T4U is perfect for you. And now, until February 30th, you can book your first ride for 43% off. Use our code BPT43ME at checkout to receive your discount. That's BPT43ME at personalmbta.com. Book your ride today. Service currently available for the Green Line only on alternating Wednesdays and Sundays. Terms and conditions may apply. And we are back. I want to pop over to Anastasia now talking about the character of uh, Marin. I'm wondering, were there any particular lines or moments in the script that helped you define and craft who your version of Marin is? 
Um, that's a great question. I, I think I mentioned this earlier. She's always very um, uh, immediate. She's very present in how she responds to things. So she responds to the thing that is directly in front of her. And that's even mentioned in the play by other characters about her. <laughs> um, and so I think there's, there's a way that her desire plays out in a very straightforward kind of way. Um, even if she's being a little bit shifty to the people around her, it's never intentional in that sense. She's not going in, or at least my interpretation of her is that she's not trying to hurt anybody. She's just moving forward. Um, and I'm sure there are some beautiful lines that Katie Shea has written that would support that, but I can't think of any of them right now. <laughs> All right, I don't mean to put you on the spot, of course. I just wanted to like figure out what jumped at you and 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 helped you. Yeah. I think especially with new plays, it's kind of a, a matter of inserting yourself into the text. Um, and so I guess it's hard a little tricky for me to articulate it because I just feel like I sit inside of this beautiful text that Katie Shea has written and just help like I propel it forward and it propels me forward. Excellent. Um there was a topic I wanted to um, chat with a little bit here. In the play, there are some uh, romantic and intimate scenes um, amongst the, the uh, characters, and we have a intimacy coach for those scenes. And I'm just wondering, Katie Shea, uh, what's your process of writing those kinds of scenes? Is it different than other scenes? Like, what are some of the things that you take into consideration when uh, adding intimacy to a play? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think particularly for this play, we have this uh, convention of being able to step into these like movementy pieces that are are not, we kind of step out of a, a realistic moment to transition. It, it shows either a passage of time, an evolution um, in the evening that kind of escalates uh, intimacy. Um, so it, it gives us that sense of things building in a, in a really fun way that allows us to be more um, a little bit more abstract with it. And, and I guess when I'm picturing it, like literally, um, I'm picturing people moving through space in my mind. I, I always picture it on a stage and I always picture it like with design, um, what I know about it. And, and so we're able to play with the physical elements in space. How can light really take us to a different place? Um, how can the, the props that we have around us, how can we make really tight use of what's near us? to help us get into these moments more naturally. Um, something that is really important to me as a theater maker, um, I have an acting background as well. And also I'm just a, a human who likes theater and likes actors. Um, I don't want actors to have to do things needlessly. I don't want any kind of gratuitous, needless, um, anything that that costs and um, intimacy, especially intimacy during uh, a potentially dangerous or scary time if we're not taking quarantine really seriously. I don't take that lightly. Um, and so the the storytelling is basically like, okay, what does the intimacy say about what these characters want and where they are um, in their personal journeys and in their connection to each other? And that kind of fuels how they might move through space. Um, so it's a little bit more of a dance almost than like a sex scene in a lot of ways. I don't know. Blair might might have a might be able to speak to that a little bit more eloquently. Uh, Blair, actually, I was going to come to you next. I'd I'd love to hear your your thoughts as a director on working with an intimacy director. I think that it thankfully and gratefully it's becoming much much more 
common uh, practice for uh, you know all professional productions to have an intimacy director an intimacy coach um, when there are these scenes so uh, I'm just let's what what's been the process for this play for you working with intimacy uh, and in general but I'm I'm really interested in this play. I am so happy and grateful that it is becoming more of an industry norm. I also started out as an actor before I shifted into directing so you know, I, I lived through a time when it was not the norm and that wasn't always great. Um, so huge shout out to all of the intimacy designers and choreographers out there. And in particular to Jesse Henson, who did our intimacy design for this production. Um, and that was such a truly lovely experience um, to have someone come in with a specific eye to just those moments and not just an eye to choreographing them in a safe consent driven manner, but in a way that did tell the story, um, you know, and that was, he really had an eye on both of those pieces and it was very collaborative. Um, I think, you know, a lot of directors might have a fear that, oh, someone else is going to come in and sort of take over in my rehearsal space. And what we learned in this process was it can be such a true collaboration to make those moments serve the story and to make those moments safe and comfortable for everyone involved. And I think similar to how Katie Shea is describing the writing process, a lot of what we found was we didn't even need as much as we thought we did. Um, the, the story became clear with the very stylized movement and sometimes the suggestion of where something was headed was actually much more interesting to watch than the thing actually happening. And I think it it let us learn so much about the characters and the relationship that is evolving through that intimate moment. You can tell that in a way that doesn't necessarily require anything that's explicit or realistic around what that intimacy would look like in the real world. I'm fascinated to see this now. Uh, <laughs> it sounds really uh, it sounds really interesting. I can't wait to check that out. Katie Shea, you wrote this play, it seems to me, since there are five women characters, to be specifically about women facing the opioid crisis from various angles. Um, how important was that focus to you? Was it always five women? Like, how did that come to be? Yeah, I, it definitely is. Um, it it had always been five women. Um, I, a lot of my plays, I try to have um, either gender flexible casting so that the actor can really bring all of themselves to it and can be more inclusive. Um, but in this particular experience, partially because a lot of the lenses that I've seen through in real life have been through a female lens um, and, and understanding the intersection of gender and how we evaluate pain. Um, and there's, we don't, if we don't believe women because we think they're dramatic or we think they're making it up or they're, you know what I mean, whatever, they're weaker than, than other people, then we're not gonna take their pain seriously. And when you have conditions that can't be proven with a test, um, it gets into dicey territory. And suddenly all of these other influences like of what the hospital policy is, what these changing uh, restrictions are, what influence we're getting from pharmaceutical companies, all these things that are not the patient's pain and just believing them um, are really shaping the care experience in a way that I think is unique. Um, I also think that there's something that would have been distracting for me um, if the character uh, Nina is the pain management doctor in this. And if Nina was a man ignoring Hannah, 
to me, that it tells a little bit of a different story than shining a light on the system. Um, to me, I, I wanted to avoid, like, even though we're in these really, really interpersonal spaces, I wanted to make sure that we're always going back to the system and that we're not writing it off as, oh, that individual is a jerk. That individual is not a great person. Like, I want to see how the system pushes them to be in these spaces. And that just felt authentic to me. Fascinating. Um, all right. So last question. Uh, I'm going to throw this out to all of you. Uh, you can choose to answer or not put you on the spot, but um, why this play now? Darren, that's the best and the worst question always. It's the best because we should answer it. It's something to consider when you're putting on any kind of theatrical production, but it's, it's uh... <laughs> I apologize uh, and thank you. I was going to say sliding into my artistic statements over here. Um, yeah, it it very much uh, for me, it, it feels relevant because obviously we're talking so much about healthcare right now and so much about how our system has failed us in the context of our, our current health crisis. Um, uh, not that the opioid epidemic was solved by any means, but with with COVID, I feel like that's really taken a lot of the focus on what is messed up about our healthcare system. But for me, I'm like that. I, I don't know that I could sit in a theater and really dive into the intricacies of that of COVID right now um, in in that context when it's still so present and scary and changing and we don't know what's going to happen next. Um, and so one aspect of why this play now is I think it gives us the chance to look at um, the human stories inside of a really broken healthcare system without needing to be so Im immersed in our current trauma that it's it's distracting you know totally yeah i'll add to that i katie shea gave a sort of a tagline of sorts to this play that is who gets to get better and who gets left behind and i think that question is so true of the opioid crisis and we've also seen it play out in all of these other ways so it does have those additional resonances right now and also just you know about the opioid piece in general or not in general the opioid piece specifically in this moment I think one of the things that jumps out at me at this play is how much things haven't improved since 2015 when this play is set as Katie Shea mentioned, a slew of laws were passed and, you know, certain family names have been stripped from certain institutions, but the actual reality for the individuals hasn't changed that much. I, um, I have a close family member who is a recovering addict who has been posting on her Facebook. I just pulled it up um, because I wanted to remember the number that overdose rates are up 30% since COVID. So not only has this moment we're in drawn our attention to the failings of our healthcare system on a larger scale, it has also created this isolation and these gaps in care that are having really major immediate effects on the people who are in trouble because of this opioid epidemic. And so I think the moment is, is very right to be reminding people that this is a problem and that the people affected by it are real human beings who deserve to be seen as individuals and not as a statistic or a number or a stereotype. Anastasia, do you want to hit in on that? I will. I will. I mean, I'll, I'll second everything that's already been said. I mean, this play does feel very timely um, and it is unsettling, um, though weirdly not surprising uh, to 
know that it is supposed to be set in 2015 and it still feels like exactly right now. Um, I will also, I mean, we're also having all of these larger conversations around privilege. And so the idea of who gets to get better and who is left behind does feel especially like something that people are turning over again more and more during pandemic times. Um, and I also, I also think this play is very entertaining. There are parts of it that are very funny. Um, and, you know, it deals with this, these very hefty issues, but it's, I, I find a lot of it delightful. And I hope that, that our audiences will as well. That's just as important. I think it is. I agree. I personally love to be entertained, um, which is why uh, we're going to play a little game right now to finish off our podcast session. It's a game that I call Playwright Mad Libs because I don't want to be sued by the people who make bad libs. Um, but because this is a play podcast about playwriting, we are right now going to craft a new short monologue uh, and this is how it's going to work. I have here a monologue with certain words missing. I'm going to ask Katie Shea as our resident playwright to fill in those missing words sight unseen. Blair, as the director of Katie Shea gets stuck, I know you've got her back so you can, you know, fine tune and help her out. And then we're going to put Anastasia on the spot to read our newly completed monologue, Cold. Are we ready to <laughs> give this a try? I'm so excited. Born ready. I'm ready. All right, here we go. Uh, some of these, by the way, as for reasons that will become clear, I've specified how many syllables the word has to be. <laughs> so just to amp up the level of difficulty for you. Aaron, are we doing Shakespeare? We are Please not. Please Shakespeare. We're yeah, not doing Shakespeare. No. It's so much better. Um, all right, Katie Shea, here we go. Our first word that we need is a two-syllable noun. Penguin. And then I need a three-syllable noun. Is, I was like, is racquetball a noun? Yeah, right? Yeah? Yeah, I think okay. it is. Sure. Right? You have to hit the ball, right? Yeah, we know sports. You can tell. Yeah. <laughs> all right, well, I'm going to tell you, I need one more three-syllable noun. I'm going to toss this to Blair. Good, yes. Blair, dive in. Tomato. Yes. I need an adjective. Green. All right. I need a generic location, right? So like not a named city or something. The mall. Excellent. Another adjective. Blair. Squiggly. Excellent. And a three-syllable noun. Party hat. All right. And a verb. Strive. All right. Well, I know you're all wondering what exactly are we doing here? Well, I have to tell you that uh, I do know, and we've seen on this Zoom call, our, our listeners can't see Katie Shea, but I know that you are a cat person. So, of course, I had to go with that most iconic of cat writings, Memory from the musical Cats. Oh, God. Yes. So, Anastasia, I will not put you on the spot and ask you to sing, unless, of course, you really want to, uh, but to treat this monologue like the magnificent poetry that it is. This is the greatest moment of my life. This is so much better than I could have ever hoped for. 
All right. Well, uh, everybody else, let's let's uh, turn our mics off here and give the floor to Anastasia. Take it away whenever you're ready. Memory, turn your face to the penguin. Let your racquetball lead you. Open up, enter in. If you find there the meaning of what tomato is, then a green life will begin. Memory, all alone in the mall. I can smile at the old days. I was squiggly then. I remember the time I knew what party hats were. Let the memory strive again. Woo. Amazing. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Good work. Important work. Somewhere Andrew Lloyd Webber is getting a hot flash. I, I guarantee it. Thank you for indulging me uh, in that bit of silliness, uh, everybody. Uh, and uh, Katie Shea Blair and Anastasia, thank you so much for talking with us today. Uh, it's time for a quick Quick pitches, uh, aside from RX Machina, which I'm gonna talk about in a second, what do y'all have coming up next that you wanna to pitch to our listeners? Well, thank you for having us so much. We're, we're really grateful to be here. Um, I wish that I had a an announceable thing, um, but I do have a website where announceable things are posted when they become announceable. So um, it's my name, uh, Katie Shea Violet. I'm sure it's posted somewhere on here. It's too many letters to spell, but you get it. Um, it's yeah, katieshaeviolet.com for updates. I too wish I had an imminent next project to announce, but I am excited to be out in Boston and the greater New England area freelancing. And I also have a website where you can learn more about me and my Chawini, which is a Chihuahua Dachshund mix uh, for those who were wondering. Ah, the mystery is solved. Yes. Solved. Um, I couldn't leave you hanging. But um, yes, you can learn more about me and what I'm working on. And that is BlairCadden.net. BlairCadden.net, yes, please hire Blair. She is fabulous. Can co-sign officially. We'll also co-sign. Is, is that like a tri triple sign? Yeah, try sign. Is that how that works? Try sign, I'll try sign. Hire Blair. Hi, I'm Anastasia Olowen. You can find out more about me and my work at AnastasiaOlowen.com. Um, I do have a couple of short film projects that are uh, will be released on the interwebs in the next couple of months and another one that I'm hoping to film in April. Um, and all of that can be found on my website. And if that incredible rendition of memory was not <laughs> enough to right? convince you to hire Anastasia for all of your casting needs, she's a joy and a wonder in the rehearsal room as well as on the podcast. It's true. It's true. Bless you. Bless you both. Well, perfect. Uh, friends, RX Magina runs from February 17 to February 27 at our very own Boston Playwrights Theater. Go to bostonplaywrights.org for info and tickets. This play is incredibly thoughtful. It's timely. You know you want to see it after listening to these amazing creators talk about it. Uh, two weeks only, so grab your mask. Get over here and support new plays. Thank you very much for listening in. I'm Darren Evans, and this is Typecast. Today's episode was written and edited by our amazing student producer, Mavis Manaloto. 
with a tiny amount of assistance by me. Mavis also wrote this episode's parody commercial. The theme music is Off to Osaka, and the final credits music is Malt Shop Bop, both by Kevin McLeod. You can find his incredibly wide-ranging music at incompetech.com. That's I-N-C-O-M-P-E-T-E-C-H.com. For more information about Boston Playwrights Theatre, including our spring season of new plays, visit bostonplaywrights.org.